Welcome to Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno. What is Gobekli Tepe? Who lived there? What does it all mean for our understanding of human history? Hey there, and welcome to Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno, and this is the 517th edition of our show. I'm Ben, and those diverse questions came from my co-host and partner in the paranormal, my dad. And this evening, we're rejoined by an old friend for a look at her own recent uh, journey to a pretty remarkable place. And we do welcome your phone calls. The number locally locally is 401-766-1240, and anywhere from the U.S. or Canada, 800-449-1240. Linda Moulton Howe was a three-time Emmy Award-winning journalist, filmmaker, author, and broadcaster who has devoted her documentary film, television, and radio career to productions about science, medicine, and the environment. She is the recipient of many local, national, and international awards. Investigative reporter for Premier Radio Network, Linda is a familiar voice on Coast to Coast AM. Among many other books, she is the author of Mysterious Lights and Crop Circles, and not to mention the fact that she's gotten us out of more than one jam on this show over the years. Her amazing website is earthfiles.com. So, Linda, welcome back to Behind the Paranormal. Hey, it's good to be with you guys. I can't believe it's been a year and a half. I know. (laughs) Is is that how long it's been? I I look back through our podcast, I couldn't believe it. A year and a half. Well, time flies. That you're having fun. That was the fastest year and a half I've ever lived. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> no. <laughs> time flies as uh, as, as you're, but time flies when you're having fun. Or yeah, at Quebecli Tepe. So tell us yeah. about Quebecli Tepe. Well, it, as you said that, my mind was going back to this trip that I took to Turkey in June of 2012 that was really, truly extraordinary in my life, and I have traveled a lot of places on the planet, and I could begin by telling you and your listeners that we had this plan that we, with uh, Robert Schock, he's the Ph.D. geologist who teaches at Boston uh, University, and he had received his Ph.D. from Yale University a long time ago and had worked with John Anthony West on the very famous research that made the, I think it was the front page of the New York Times back around 90, 91, 92, somewhere in there. And that's how I first came to meet John Anthony West and to talk with Robert Chalk eventually. And that is a very important piece to set this introduction going into go, to Gobekli Tepe because what Robert Chalk and John Anthony West did in the early 90s by going to Cairo, going with uh, a totally hard-based scientific context within which to look at the Sphinx. And it was Robert Chalk who was convinced that there was only one pattern, one thing that could cause the pattern on the Sphinx that is down around the lower, I think it's 10 to 13 feet of it, is water. And it would be rainwater, water that is coming from above and making grooves and channels down along the side of that 12, 13 base of those Sphinx. They reported this. The New York Times reported it. And it, of course, became very controversial back in around the 1992 period because both John Anthony West and Robert Schock said at that time not only was there water, uh, this weathering on the Sphinx, but 
how would they go back in time and try to determine when would it have rained hard and caused this? And there is something called archaeoclimate, and they did some research and found that the last time on the planet where there could have been conditions with a lot of rain along the Nile area and Cairo was 14,000 years ago. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, so they reported that. Now, we're, we're, right now, we're in the early 90s. Well, that caused all kinds of pushback from people in science and academia who were just adamant, no, there's a line in the sand, literally. There's nothing older on this planet than 5,000 years ago. It began with Mesopotamia. And, I mean, there were fights about this. Okay. Now, you jump to 2010, uh, three years ago. This was the very first year that there was any public knowledge information at all about Gobekli Tepe, which is in that part of the world in Turkey, to translate to English means pot-bellied hill. And when you're there, you begin to understand how sheep herders would look at this hill that rises with this beautiful, gentle kind of slope on the top, but is surrounded by higher ground. A lot of people don't realize this. Gobekli Tepe is not the top of any hill. It is actually surrounded by protective hills, and it does look a bit like a pot belly, but what is on that pot belly is what turned upside down the German archaeologist uh, Schmidt and people in Turkish archaeology because he had started working on this uh, site back in 1990. And interestingly enough, the reason why Klaus Schmidt from Germany was interested goes all the way back to 19, early 1960s. And it was archaeologists from the United States that had been over in that part of southern Turkey, and they were doing some other archaeology work, and they happened to be taken to this area. Remember now, in the 60s, nothing was exposed, nothing was known. But the sheep herders there and the people in that area where they had been doing other archaeology work said, look at this hill, uh, we think there's something in there. And the archaeologists wrote a paper that was published about this very interesting hill in uh, north uh, east of, or yeah, northeast of San, what was called Lurfa, but is now San Lurfa, Turkey, and that it should be investigated. And this is how slow science does work. From the 60s to 1994, no one did anything. <laughs> and then Klaus Schmidt began, and meticulous, he's known to be a meticulous, assiduous scientist, and he started doing the grid strings and all the things that they're taught at Yale and Oxford to do. And in 2010, with all of his background and academic weight, he first reported to the world that the carbon dating kept repeating at 10,000 B.C., which is 12,000 years ago, which is only 2,000 years from the age that Dr. Schock said in the early 90s was his best guess for the age of the Sphinx. 
So now suddenly here is this other gigantic piece of evidence and I wanted to see this for myself and I joined Dr. Schock and a group of about 30 some of us and we went to Turkey going to Istanbul and then going uh, through all kinds of archaeological uh, places like Ephesus and so forth working our way down to southeastern Turkey to Gobekli Tepe and it was on the early morning because Dr. Shock wanted to get there and see what did it look like when the sun was coming up because that's very important archaeologically over the ancient periods of time that so many things for reasons unknown were built so that certain light at certain cycles uh, not necessarily solstices and equinoxes but there appears to be all kinds of reasons for why stone things were built in the ancient times having to do with astronomy, which is the stars, the moon, and the sun. So all astronomy, but not always necessarily just because of equinox and solstices. So he said, I, I want us to be there early enough that it will be dark and that we will be able to see the sun rise and we'll be able to see what part of Gobekli Tepe lights up first. So on Wednesday, June 13th, as the sun rose, I was standing on the hill above the actual excavated area of Gobekli Tepe. And I was facing the sun direction on purpose as it rose. So I knew that it was coming against my face in the front and I was as straightforward to it as I could be. And all I did was turn 180 degrees. I didn't walk. I didn't change any place. I just turned on my feet. And I could look down into, it's sort of like a pit is not exactly right, but it's where the land goes down from the top of Gobekli Tepe. And they have now built these walkways so that it is easier to go around and see what they have discovered so far. And these are three, so far, three, four, A, B, C, D, four archaeological sections that over the last, from 94 till 2013 and counting, that Dr. Schmidt carefully has been removing all of this soil and discovering what many people think is one of the most astonishing, if not the most astonishing archaeological site on the planet, and I mean people have said that because it is carbon dated at 12,000 years, Egypt is is 5,000. Mm -hmm. So we're talking about a site that was not known to this planet until three years ago, that is more than twice the age of Egypt and Mesopotamia. Now, with that in mind, what is there and why is this so extraordinary to the archaeological world and I think of great importance to the whole planet? It is because what Dr. Schmidt has been able to uncover during these decade and a half are they're 19 foot tall, made out of limestone, elegantly carved limestone pillars. And they have been placed carefully in circular patterns. 
and some of them, the important, important ones in relationship to the sun and all kinds of things, are literally mounted in what is called by the locals altars. And when you're there, you begin to understand that you are in the presence of something, number one, that you've never seen anywhere. And I'm, in, I'm talking about as compared to Egypt and other places. This is absolutely unique. And with my back now to the sun and going straight forward, I walked, I looked at the pillars that were getting light first, which included some of these that have these remarkable, they're, they're literally sculpted altars around the base of these 19-foot pillars. And archaeologists do not understand how they were made, how these were raised, how they were put into these slots. It's like somebody made a very sophisticated technological slot in the base of these altars for these big, tall, 19-foot-tall pillars to be inserted. And then I decided that I would walk with, with the idea that now I see the pillars that I want to get close to. So I went down on the ramps into the interior part, and... I got as close as I could to what I had been seeing in the sun, and that included in what they call section C as in cat and D as in dog, are two of these extraordinary pillars in these, uh, in these altars. And the one on the right in section D, if, you're, if the sun was still to your back and it was lighted, one of the ones lighted first, I had seen photos, but I wasn't prepared for what I felt as I got close. And this is, to me, this was remarkable because I have literally traveled northern hemisphere, southern hemisphere of this planet. I have been in fields having to do with animal mutilation research, often by myself. I have been in hundreds, literally hundreds of crop formations in Europe, uh, some in the United States, uh, sometimes by myself and with other people. But whatever the mystery is that I've tried to investigate, I've always had some kind of a sixth sense about what I was dealing with. I could swat it into something that my terrestrial Earth mind could think about in some sort of a logical way that we're used to as uh, mammals living on the surface of this planet, and we have certain, I guess you would say, our mind and our eye have evolved so that certain patterns, certain structures, light, everything means something to us at some sort of an intuitive level. Everybody knows that. So when you're standing in front of something very close, as I was, to the pillar that has these thin, narrow arms with fingers that are carved around as if something were embracing this pillar. And there is a very odd three-dimensional animal on that pillar that might be a fox and might not because there are all kinds of three-dimensional carved animals at the site and in the San Lurfa Museum that I tell you, you, there's no recognition you're talking about truly alien creatures. 
and there's an odd belt that goes around that's carved in this particular pillar that I was standing in front of. It has symbols that nobody has been able to find a match to in any of the ancient languages yet. And so, as I'm standing there, what I began to realize is that all of my instincts couldn't give me any feeling. I had no sense of what is this for? What am I standing in the middle of? I am surrounded by a few dozen of these pillars that have been excavated. There are ramps there that are terrestrial, but even with the terrestrial ramps, the feeling that floods you is this is eerie. It feels disturbing. I've never seen anything like it. And in fact, in the actual archaeology magazine that was published in Anatolia and came out, I got my copy at the Istanbul airport. I couldn't believe I was looking at exactly what it was we were over there, which was a cover having to do with Gobekli Tepe. And in the uh, magazine article written by archaeologists in Turkey, here is one of their quotes. The T-shaped pillars have an anthropomorphic identity. But who are they? Mm. As their faces are never depicted, they seem very likely to be related to supernatural beings, beings gathered at Gobekli Tepe for certain but so far unknown purposes, close quote. Archaeologists said this. I think that is the best summary of, of everything that everybody currently knows and feels about Gobekli Tepe. It is truly unique. There's no debate. Stress that. There's no debate about the 12,000-year-old age because of the absolutely meticulous care with which uh, archaeologist Schmidt has taken in doing this over a decade and a half before it was even announced. And that makes this very difficult for archaeologists. I uh, got back from Gobekli Tepe to my office, and one of the first things I wanted to do was to try to get a hold of an archaeologist on the East Coast. I won't give his name because he said he did not want to be quoted, but he's in a very prestigious institution, and I had interviewed him before on uh, a dig in Turkmenistan uh, about 10 years ago. So I called and asked him about this, and he told me, he said, Linda, listen, off the record, I'm not doubting what Dr. Schmidt has done or finding, but we are all having a very difficult time with 12,000 years. Mm-hmm. I said, but sir, it's carbon dating exactly like you and others use in archaeological digs, whether it's Turkmenistan, Uzbekistan, Egypt, or wherever. And he said, I know, I know, Linda, but you have no idea how this is a slap in the face to this long history of academia that has locked in neat boxes around 5,000 years ago as the beginning can you imagine this? The beginning of civilization. Mm-hmm. Today that seems quaint, doesn't it? Yes. That suddenly humans were writing and carving in stone and making these gigantic pyramids and obelisks 5,000 years ago. Wow! They just suddenly came alive as a civilization. I mean, 
when you think about what we've been taught in school, today it's laughable. Well, it's the motto of our show, everything you know is wrong. Yeah. yeah. And so now what I want to do is to take you one step further into the museum in San Lurfa and explain to you why the Gobekli Tepe artifacts, lots of the most important ones have been moved there, and that all of us were actually stunned to learn, number one, no one has had money in all of these, uh, this decade and a half when Schmidt uh, started working. No one has had money, or let's put it this way, the Turkish government did not see fit to provide money for security. So here is this astonishing, mind-blowing, groundbreaking archaeological emergence. It's 30 acres, you guys. They've only been able to uncover three or four. There's 30 full acres from deep under uh, deep ground penetrating radar. They know that these tall pillars are going in circles over 30 acres. And no security, and so what started happening in the last two to three years since the first public notice in 2010, they would uncover at the base of pillars extraordinary statues, extraordinary all kinds of archaeological finds that they still don't even understand what they are. And they would leave them like you would, uh, it would be like, okay, I'm in a place and I'm doing forensic uh, evidence and I'm doing lab reports and I'm doing carbon dating and I'm doing sketches on everything where it's found and we're doing latitude, longitude, and we're not going to move a thing. That seemed logical when they started. Well, suddenly, some of these unique pieces began to disappear. And they realized that people were coming in the night and they were stealing what they were uncovering that was movable. Mm. That was something nobody heard about but was happening. And the uh, week before we arrived on June 13th, a very valuable piece, even when they had started hiring security, they had security there, was stolen, whether it's an inside job or not. So now... We are told that Dr. Schmidt, who was going to meet with us and especially to talk with uh, Dr. Robert Schock from uh, the East Coast, he couldn't because he had to go to Istanbul to report to an antiquities office and the government about what had happened, that they were desperate for security. And this is why, over the last couple of years especially, they started getting the most valuable, movable pieces transferred by truck to what is called the San Lurfa Museum. Beautiful, rather small for museums in the United States, but done very well. And after we had been there, we went to the San Lurfa Museum. And where Gobekli Tepe, in all of its tall rings of limestone pillars with three-dimensional animals that you don't know what they are, with symbols that nobody has ever been able to translate, with a sense of eeriness of something alien. I just say it, something alien made Gobekli Tepe is the feeling. You go to the museum, and the first thing you're met with as you climb the stairs is a creature 
that is absolutely not identifiable. <laughs> and I have in my Earth Files reports photographs of everything I'm talking to you about. And it includes this strange creature that meets you at the museum door. And when you go into the museum, I'll tell you exactly how it happened. We came in, and there were artifacts, like a first phase, and some of the people in shock went a specific direction. He already knew that the artifacts that he wanted to see were in a, a further back room. So I followed, but I didn't know. We hadn't talked about it. I don't think he knew exactly what had been transferred there. So we're all in an exploratory mode, and I've got my camera ready to take photos everywhere. And we walked into a room, and as I'm looking right now at my own Earth Files report, we came into this room, and my mind is saying it looks like some sort of a totem, like you might find in Alaska, but not made out of wood. It's made out of stone. And I'm walking toward it from the side, and I took my first photograph from uh, two, three, or four from the side, thinking that it was the oddest totem. I couldn't understand what the head was. I could see shoulder, arms. I could see another set of arms. I saw what I thought was a snake going up the side of the leg, and I'm on the ground in next to, on either side of this big, tall totem, which is over six feet tall, were these little strange uh, animals that we all came to uh, understand were supposed to be wild boars and some other very odd animals. And so now I'm moving slowly because it wasn't a, wasn't a packed museum and we weren't on a rush, so I'm moving slowly trying to absorb the scene, and I come around to the front. And the picture that I have, it's exactly the way I experienced it as I show it at Earth Files. What was a profile of a bizarre animal head at the top of the totem, when you go to the front, is completely obliterated on the front. The only part of it that has any identifiable animalness is on the side. And below this obliterated face, was another face that's obliterated, but you can clearly see the shoulders, the arms, the fingers coming around in a middle body below the obliterated large animal face. And suddenly I realized what I thought were snakes on the side. That's exactly what they look like. When you come around to the front, the snake's heads are the knees of the strange second body with the arms and hands, and coming out of what would be the pubic area of that middle body is the head and the small body of what looks like a human child being born. Oh, my gosh. I'm going to have to stop you there because we're late for our break. Okay, everybody, you're listening to Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno on WOON 1240 in New England's beautiful Blackstone River Valley. We'll be right back with this amazingly... Uh, fascinating conversation with Linda Moulton Howe in just a moment. Stick with us. 
Hi, I'm Roth Nar, host of Community Connections Radio Show that airs the fourth Wednesday of the month at 9 a.m. here on ON 1240. The show is a production of Family Resources Community Action, a social service agency in Woonsocket that helps strengthen families, individuals, and the community. Each month, we invite guests from the community to share news about programs, services, events, and issues of concerns to our residents. Past topics have included youth services, employment and training, and housing and homelessness. For more information about FRCA, call 401-766-0900. Please tune in to Community Connections the fourth Wednesday of the month at 9 a.m. Hope you can join us. We're always here for you, Owen Radio. And hello again. We just want to do, before we get back to our conversation with Linda Moulton Howe, just remind you of several charities Ben and I have adopted. Uh, many veterans charities are among those. I had the privilege on December 21st of being present in Burlville, Rhode Island, right in the heart of our listening area here, as the uh, Homes for Our Troops and Builders Helping Heroes presented the keys to a spe- of a specially adapted house to Kevin and Kayla Dubois, young uh, young couple, uh, just expecting their first child in February. Great timing. And the uh, uh, situation was that Kevin had lost both his legs in Afghanistan, U.S. Marine, and uh, everyone was, I was really proud to be there. It was a really great thing to see. Also, uh, we uh, also support uh, USACares.org and Canadian Veterans Advocacy. Uh, whether you're a Canadian listener or not, uh, state, you know, check that out. It's a wonderful, uh, Legislative uh, advocacy group founded by Mike Blaze from Ontario, and they do a lot of good for Canada's veterans who, as you know, have stood shoulder to shoulder with us in the war on terror since the beginning. So check all those out. Uh, okay, now we're going to come back to our conversation. And uh, Linda, before we, we resume this, we're riveted with this. And uh, as, as in all our conversations with you, we're only scratching the surface and we need more time. Uh, tell us about your website, where people can find out more about your books, et cetera, et cetera. Well, earthfiles.com, the name comes from, uh, think of a reporter who files news about the earth, so that's what I do, uh, earthfiles, and I began earthfiles.com as a news website in 1999 to complement the work that I was doing on ra- in radio and television, and it has uh, grown and evolved over from 1999 to now and going forward, and there are are now almost 2,500 in-depth reports that are equivalent to approximately 60,000 images, documents, and illustrations. And every single thing, every report that I've done since 1999 are in an archive chronologically. The top of the chronological list of those 2,500 is uh, now in 2014 going all the way down to the beginning of 1999. And I had two goals. One was to uh, interface with the new and evolving uh, Internet and to be able to have images and documents and illustrations and eventually audio and video at a website that would relate to what I was reporting uh, for Clear Channel's Premier Radio Network, Coast to Coast, and uh, Dreamland. I was working with Art Bell then and uh, was doing an awful lot of media, radio, and television. And so all of it came together. And today what I find is that earthfiles.com, I'm still doing lots of breaking news. That is my goal as often as possible with as much substance as possible. But the website now, as many people write to me and they say, you're 
website is now like an encyclopedia in my daily life. And for people who are interested in science and environment, even some medicine and certainly real X-Files from the context of something that's real, not something that's mythological or science fiction, um, I think that earthfiles.com today is used as like a reference book. Like you would Google something, you can go to earthfiles. That's how I use it. Yeah. So right now I would say that earthfiles.com in some ways is uh, as important and sometimes more important than the radio and the TV work that I do. But I like being able to do them all. I like being able to work with you. And I especially like the fact that we're doing a radio interview. And I can say, go to earthfiles.com. If you're a subscriber, you need to be a subscriber for the archive in the Real X-Files. You don't for the brand new science and environment reports until they're archived. But I don't think that subscribing to this much material is... uh, is a difficult thing for people to do, and in a radio broadcast like this, all of these photographs that I took in the museum and at the site and all of this work is laid out. So as we talk, if you were going to my Gobekli Tepe Earth Files reports, you would see everything. And where we left off, I was standing in front of this more than six-foot-tall stone totem that is essentially has a bizarre creature at the top, another bizarre creature in the middle, and what's being born out of the two is what looks like a human baby. And I thought immediately of the government report that I was handed, allegedly a presidential briefing paper on April 9th, 1983, when I was working on a home box office project, that was allegedly about what our government knew concerning extraterrestrial biological entities interacting with this planet, and it included a paragraph that began, these extraterrestrial biological entities manipulated DNA in already evolving primates to create Homo sapiens sapien. And another part of that document said, all questions and mysteries about the evolution of Homo sapien on this planet have been answered, and this project is closed. And those words were ringing in my mind as I'm standing in that San Lurfa Museum, staring at a stone totem representing for all the world to see, if they could understand, that something that was not human was giving birth to something that appeared to be human. Well, Linda, you know me, and I'm never at a loss for words, but I am now. Well, I'm telling you, this is extraordinary, and this is real, and this evidence, I'll give you a quote from, again, actual archaeology, June uh, 2012 issue, quote, one of the biggest surprises at Gobekli Tepe was a large sculpture reminiscent of the totem poles of North American natives which was discovered in 2009. Nobody knew this. They discovered it in 2009. They didn't excavate until 2010. The sculpture had been set into the northeastern wall of a rectangular room and was not visible originally due to the wall completely covering this. So when this whole place was constructed, this totem was even constructed behind a wall. 
The remarkable length is six feet four inches, and the uppermost motif depicts a predator. Close quote. Actual archaeology, Istanbul, Turkey, June 2012. The uppermost motif depicts a predator. So now we are all, I mean, there was a bunch of us standing around just absolutely like, this is, how? why doesn't the whole world know about this? Hmm. And then Shock says, well, we came back here fast. Let's go back. I want you to make sure that you are looking at what is known as Urfa Man. This is the town of Urfa, now known as San Lurfa. And so we go back to near the front. And I have a photograph of this. I tried very hard trying to do justice. It's all encased uh, for good re- reason. This is really something. This is a life-size statue of a hairless, um, I would say male, who has a, a large head, had a, an extremely large nose of which the front has been hacked off, like the, we'll call it the predator's face had been obliterated. This nose has been clearly whacked off and it was very large. The First thing that you're looking at, besides that this is a humanoid in front of you and you're reading a sign that says this was found in that hill, along with those pillars, along with the totem, along with all of these strange things, and then you, you're you looking at eyes that you can't take your eyes away from and you realize they are obsidian crystals. They are three-dimensional They glitter with light. It's very difficult to look away from them. They are so compelling. And the eyes are, I would say, made to look round as opposed to the human almond shape with all of this three-dimensional faceted coming out of them. And then that cracked-off nose. And then you realize that there's no mouth. It's sunken. And that it appears to have been formed that way. It isn't broken. It's completely a sophisticated sculpture. And as you stare at what we think of as the place for a mouth from which we talk and we eat and make love and all of the things that humans do, this is a caved-in, made caved-in mouth-chin area. And then... Your mind, or at least that's the way I was, I'm absorbing it piece by piece, and now it's like my mind goes back from this haunting head, and I realize that I'm looking at what it must be a leotard. It has a carved double V-neck in this limestone on Earth of Man, and the first thing that comes into your head is Star Trek. <laughs> and they, I'm, I'm serious. Yeah. It's those uniforms those V-necks, this is a double V-neck, and this is a man, a statue, that was carved allegedly 12,000 years ago, maybe even earlier, that's in this museum that was taken from that pot-bellied hill where we were amid all of those pillars that nobody can understand. And 
then you are now saying, my God, this is a like a Star Trek leotard, and you look further, and the two hands of this man, a bit like the two hands embracing that tall 19-foot pillar in the hill, are embracing what has to be an erect phallus. And as I was standing there, somebody walked up to me and they said, if those are the testicles, which you can see in these photographs, hanging below the hands, and the hands, you can count them, one, two, three, four, five, on each hand, there are five fingers uh, where if you're standing looking, you're looking at those five fingers and the testicles hanging below. And the person said, I mean, if this is supposed to depict an entity, a creature, who had opposable thumbs like humans, this this creature, this entity must be six-fingered. And where do six fingers kick in in our Earth's history? In Genesis, in the Bible, that the Nephilim found the women, the female humans, uh, attractive enough to have sexual intercourse with, and the product were a... Uh, a hybrid of giants with six fingers and six toes. That's true. You know, I'm looking back at some of the theories that I tend to agree with, and one of the things that I I don't flatter myself to think you've read my last book because you're a far more distinguished writer than I'll ever be, but the idea that someone came through uh, somehow, and was an influence on our remote ancestors. But it has always struck me that, you know, barring DNA splitting and all this sort of thing, that the DNA between the, if you want to call them visitors and the native whatevers, had to be almost identical in order for reproduction to occur. I mean, without, again, highly technological procedures on that. You're bypassing the manipulation of DNA that does not need to have sexual intercourse. That may be that the genesis was put together by humans, and they may not have understood the possibility of highly technological uh, uh, manipulating, literally manipulating at a DNA level without the necessity for... Uh, sexual interaction. Oh, exactly. Well, you know, I'm thinking too of the of the uh, the uh, the Atrahasis documents of the Akkadian Empire and also the uh, Karsag epics, and, and they're talking about, as you know, uh, Nin Karsag, the mother goddess, as they thought of her, taking what we know as basic DNA sources, saliva and blood, and using it to literally create a worker race. I mean, that's how you read it if you take away the divine imagery. So it really sort of matches up with what you've just said, if that's if yeah. there is a connection. Well, I, I'm telling you, when you're there and you are learning what we were learning about Gobekli Tepe and seeing all of this in that museum, it leaves you with a sense that suddenly you are uh, so much closer to what the truth is about the beginning not the beginning of civilization or life, the the beginning of Homo sapiens sapien in that transition 35,000 years ago from Neanderthalensis, that we're dealing with the fact, staring us in the face now with these new archaeological discoveries, that it's 
more than likely that different non-human groups were terraforming this planet, as one government guy told me in 99, Linda, we have evidence, I don't know what it is, but he, I mean, he, he didn't explain, he just said, we have evidence that three geopolitical, territorial, conflicting, extraterrestrial civilizations, meaning they don't get along, and yeah. that they, they are territorial about what they do on this planet for more than 270 million years. And I said, I mean, two, 270 million, and Homo sapien sapien is only 35,000, this current model of standing up primate. And we talked about that, and he said, this planet that we assume is us in our evolution in, and Darwin and all of that, it's not true. And that the now the question is, who made Gobekli Tepe? That was my who, next question. Yeah. yeah, who are these vast intelligences that compete with each other that would be terraforming Earth, Mars, planets throughout this solar system and other solar systems for their needs? And why did they leave? And that, why did they leave? If did they're they not leave? here now and they made all of this, why are they not here? Well, this gets to one of the most fascinating pieces of the entire Gobekli Tepe story from Klaus Schmidt's point of view. He did uh, various soil compression tests around uh, where they were doing all of this uh, digging and revealing these pillars and came to the conclusion, based on a lot of hard scientific data, that if the We'll call them all these rings of all of these limestone pillars were constructed by somebody 12,000 years ago. A thousand years later, because he has that difference in terms of carbon dating. So now we're at 11,000 years ago, that there is all kinds of soil compression and carbon dating evidence that the entire 30 acres of these 19-foot-tall, elegant strange rings of pillars with all of these totems and statues and all of the Urfa man and all of the stuff there were completely buried. And the fact that nobody is disputing that either is significant because can you imagine what it would take to do all of this and then a thousand years after it had all been built and constructed that somehow you had a way to cover it all up, making another hilltop with nothing visible, and why? Well, this gets to the issue of what was happening 12,000 years ago on this planet in the natural cycle of the Earth. And that's where you get to the last ice age began, at or, well, not began, the last ice age was at its most intense, 18 thousand years ago that's right and for 18,000 to 12,000 years those are the correct numbers there was a slow and gradual release of all of the coal that was at its height it started melting a little and then by 12,000 years ago whatever happened I don't know that anybody is absolutely certain but 12,000 years ago, 
there was a warming. And it began warming, and obviously that meant that there was a lot of melt, could explain some of the flood stories. And as it melted, there was a another period that came about 11, well, 10-5 to 11-5 is what University of Arizona scientists say. So somewhere in there. Uh, the uh, Younger Dryas. Now, the Younger Dryas was first discovered as being a carbon, what they call a carbon mat, M-A-T-T-E. And the carbon mat is a layer. I have photographs of it in my Earth Files stories that when you uh, when you do excavation out in the plains or it's it's throughout most of the middle of the United States for sure I've seen lots of photographs and I have a really beautiful one in this series that I did and it's a black layer it is found all over this central part of the United States parts of Canada they're looking at it for in other parts of the world now and the hypothesis by the University of Arizona scientists is that approximately 10.5 to 11.5, somewhere in there, they think it's comets as opposed to asteroids because they think that water was involved in this time period and comets coming into the atmosphere of the Earth and hitting would explain some of what they're trying to study. Now, what evidence do we have in addition to the fact that there's this black carbon mat throughout so much of North America that goes to the Younger Dryas period when it suddenly went rapidly cool again? It had been warming up just great. Now it goes cold again and there's ice. Well, it turns out that that period of time matches almost to a T on a timeline the other mystery of what in the world happened, especially in North America, that saber-toothed tigers have been found with their spines twisted 180 degrees. We've heard uh, in school about all of the uh, big mastodons being found with buttercups so perfect in their mouth that they were like quick frozen. The bottom line is that an event happened somewhere in the 11,000 to 12,000 years ago that caused quick freezing and massive death in North America. They're looking for the same evidence in other parts of the planet. But what happened in North America, 33 large mammals went extinct. In that one violent whatever event, 33, and that included the woolly mammal. And so... When you look at this evidence, and now they've also got nanodiamonds and iridium in this younger dryest layer, and we always associate iridium with something coming from outer space, and the nanodiamonds were probably created because whatever happened, there was impact, there was impact with the ground, and that was huge pressure, and when you have huge pressure on carbon, you get little diamonds. Hmm. And these nano diamonds are not for jewelry; they're they're microscopic. But the fact that they were created in the thousands in this younger dryest mat means something like that. Huge. Well, now, what if this is the speculation when it comes to Gobekli Tepe? 
if we are dealing with non-humans who have terraformed the planet for millions of years, that they have built stone circles that provided them technology in energy, in uh, communication, that that would be the reason why there were stone circles all around the planet, that they were all related in some way, and that the non-humans did not want to lose one of their valuable, we'll call it science instruments, at Gobekli Tepe. And they have the ability, technologically, to build all of this and then to cover it up when they had some kind of advanced warning that there was going to be a catastrophe. Now, that is a discussion I've had with Robert Schock, Ph.D. Yale, and he is one of the biggest proponents now for exactly what I've just laid out to you. He is convinced that there was some sort of a natural catastrophe that caused all of this death in the Canada-North American side and that somebody somehow on the other side of the planet at what we're calling Gobekli Tepe knew and covered it all up until 1994 when Klaus Schmidt began to shovel. Wow. Well, how much more time do we have, Ben? About three minutes. Three minutes, okay, because yep. we have to make way for the... After an hour of mind-blowing uh, discussion and facts here, we have to make way for the uh, Boston Celtics and uh, well, uh, Houston for Rockets. This is yeah. the human world. That's the, the human, human world. world. That's right. Sports. That's right. <laughs> but, Linda, just very quickly, if we can squeeze this in. Uh, I have a million questions, but, but what exactly at Gobekli Tepe was carbon dated? Because last I looked, you couldn't carbon date rocks, and even if you no. could, it wouldn't tell you. What, no, what, it's not how the was pillars, that done? no. It is the material that there were so... I didn't know this either, so I was there. They have found so much material that was oh, in and by material. I'm talking about uh, they've found... Uh, uh, I think there was a piece of something that was sort of like uh, a woven cloth uh, buried. But all of this is deep. You know, it's down oh, yeah, in the soil, yeah. and that's how the same thing that they have done in Egypt and Mesopotamia. Yeah, that'll do uh, it. When they go straight down, and they're doing those, uh, when they get to anything that has organic matter, and then they do this, the carbon dating there, they find another piece that uh, is some kind of carbon, and they just keep going down in these grids, and the deeper they go down, farther back in time they're going. That's right. I'm afraid that's all the time we have. Uh, we're going to have you back because I think this, this is chapter one of several chapters. Yeah, okay. basically. <laughs> and, uh, thank you so much. It's always a great pleasure and, and uh, a stimulating experience. Thank you. Linda Bolton, how everybody? EarthFiles.com. Happy New Year. Happy, Happy New Year to you, you too. Talk to you soon. Bye. Okay. All right, everybody. Wow. That's amazing. Ready. So on that note, you can visit our show website, BehindTheParanormal.com, where you can find well over 500 free podcasts of all of our past shows, both regularly scheduled and specials. Also, check out our uh, site at www.NewEnglandGhosts.com, where there are case studies and photos, along with articles by my dad. And you can find my books at uh, Amazon.com, of course, uh, Barnes & Noble Nook e-reader, Amazon Kindle, and all those great places. But if you buy them directly at BehindTheParanormal.com, I will sign them for you, and you will help us keep all those 500 podcasts free. Also on our sites, you'll find direct links to the, uh, several of the charities Ben and I have adopted mentioned USA Cares and Canadian Veterans Advocacy. 
So next Monday, January 20th, right here on WON1240 and ONWorldwide.com, we will bring you another Open Lines show on, uh, that's the wrong page, on all subjects. So get your questions to us at paul at behindtheparanormal.com or just plain call in. And don't forget our Facebook page, Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno. You can like us and send us messages that way too. Yeah, good idea. And uh, don't forget again to stay tuned for the Boston Celtics-Houston Rockets game right after our show. And we leave you this evening with an interesting quote from an American author and guru of positive thinking, Norman Vincent Peale. Part of the happiness of life consists not in fighting battles, but in avoiding them. A masterly retreat is in itself a victory. I'm Paul Eno. And I'm Ben Eno, and thanks for joining us on our great cosmic journey, and we'll see you next time. Return to this radio frequency 167 hours from now for another edition of Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno.